You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. and thank you for tuning in to another episode of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice on Cannabis Radio. I'm your host, Bethany Moore. I'm the Director of Communications at the National Cannabis Industry Association. Today, I am speaking with one of our members, Andrew Kay, who is Chief Commercial Officer at Sweetleaf Madison Capital and Principal at AJK Consulting, LLC. He's been involved in all aspects of the financial services industry, working as a fund portfolio investment manager, investment banker, family office investor, and attorney. Andrew's worked with startups on their first raise and supported global enterprise undertaking billion-dollar stock offerings. He also has significant investment experience in the cannabis industry. Welcome to the show today, Andrew. Thank you for having me, Bethany. Absolutely. I got to see you recently in person at our Colorado Cannabis Caucus, which was such a great event, don't you think? I think it was a really, really nice event and very elegant as well. Oh, we're, we're classy here at NCIA when we throw our caucuses. <laughs> uh, <laughs> awesome. It was great to meet you in person before our listeners Let's hear a little more about uh, your background and your experience and all the different kinds of things you did before you moved into the cannabis space. Well, I guess you can say I'm an OG when it comes to my career. Following graduation from law school, I was an assistant professor at Hunter College in the economics department for two years then I decided would, I ran out of funny stories to go into the actual practice of law, which I did for a decade. Um, I worked in New York for Sullivan and Cromwell, and I worked in Tokyo, Japan for what was then Hamana and Matsumoto, which is now the largest law firm in Japan. Following that decade, I moved on to my next segment of my work, which was an investment banker. I was in the New York office of what was then Nico Securities for a decade, uh, ended up as senior vice president doing cross-border transactions, financings, and actually focusing on the tech center principally. Then I moved to the portfolio management side for another decade with, um, in New York with Madison Capital Management. And I um, did investments uh, across the um, 
across the cap stack in mezzanine and debt primarily with some equity. And finally, I actually ended up uh, with a family office for two years. So I think you can say that I have had exposure to virtually every area of finance in both law, portfolio management, and in investment banking. I'm guessing you're really good with numbers and you're good at math. <laughs> I would say I'm not. I'm really sort of a process and um, um, I'm a transactional uh, individual whose job it is to get deals done. Got it. All right. Well, thanks for breaking that down. Absolutely. Some some very interesting experience that you bring to a newer industry, uh, the cannabis industry. It was it started as just a movement when I, I was an activist and now we actually have a flourishing industry in in dozens of states across the country so how did you end up moving into all that very formal investment oversight financial services industry world into the cannabis industry and you mentioned you're a little bit of an og so i'd love to hear more about how we like to call your relationship with the cannabis plant well, I guess a good place to start is when I was about 13 years old, and I actually went to Woodstock with my parents. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, well, you might ask, why would my parents go to Woodstock? And the uh, I think the prevailing theory is that they went there to pick my older sister up and remove her from the concert. Oh. However, however, we ended up, of course, staying there for a while. Then the rain began, and uh, I think my mother and my father decided it was time for us to leave. So... Uh, that kind of puts me in the OG category, I'd say. Um, and I've been a social consumer of cannabis since my teenage years. Um, and actually, I decided to go into the cannabis business um, in 2016. I had, um, deci- I had kind of moved on from some of my prior um, gigs, and I uh, decided to act as an intern chief operating officer at a New York cannabis investment fund. At that time, 2016, I attended a conference at NYU Law School where I'd gone, which um, was about cannabis investing. And at that meeting were the who's who of New York finance. Goldman Sachs, um, Skadden Arps, Sullivan and Cromwell. Um, And it dawned on me that cannabis had become legit and that I would be in the business long term. After a while, I retired a little bit and actually moved to an island called Florinopolis off of southern Brazil. And I had heard that my former colleague, uh, Brian Gordon, was uh, getting into cannabis, which I had urged him to do earlier. And I called him up and I said, Brian, I hear you're in cannabis. And he basically said, yes, and so are you. So get on a plane and come home, which I did. <laughs> And um, at that point, we were starting a new company called Sweetleaf Madison Capital through Madison Ventures Plus, which I am also a managing director of. Uh, And we bought a majority interest in Sweetleaf Capital out of Denver, which was an incumbent financer on the debt side to cannabis companies, primarily in leasing and small real estate. And we combined, uh, we have a love child, Sweetleaf Management, uh, Sweetleaf Manage, I'm sorry, Sweetleaf Madison Capital. And um, I've been with them since as the chief commercial officer. And that was in September of 2021. 
that was not too long ago. And 2021 was still kind of the height of the pandemic as well. Um, so, I mean, a, a, a lot of good timing there for when we had a lot of downtime, I suppose, right? <laughs> We, we did. Um, you know, we were working remotely. I am actually resident in New York City. Our offices are in West Palm Beach and Denver, Colorado. And I am, I suppose, the capital markets guy, considering that I'm in the uh, in New York City where a lot of capital flows. So I'm conveniently located for the purposes of our business, which is lending to the cannabis industry. Yeah, absolutely. So it is you and your partner. And tell me more about how the company is continuing to grow uh, as we move into 2023. Well, what we did was we combined the staff and management of the company. There were two principals of Sweet Leaf Capital in Denver. Um, Brian became the uh, uh, chief executive officer. And so we... Um, Put together a team of uh, some people from Sweet Leaf side, some from the Madison side. In my day-to-day -day role, I'm Chief Commercial Officer of Sweet Leaf Madison, responsible for capital development and investment strategy and execution. I run the day-to-day -day lending business of the company with a, a crew of really very talented and experienced professionals. We have an operations group, an underwriting group, a vendor finance group, and a capital markets group. We focus on asset-based debt, including real estate, equipment financing, and senior secured working capital, focusing mostly on the middle to high middle market, small and medium-sized enterprises in the cl uh, compliant cannabis market and nationwide from seed to sale. Uh, recent, yeah, recently, the good news is we just closed on $100 million of financing um from a um a new york entity and so we are we have a lot of dry powder now and as we all know over the last several years cannabis has had some ups and some downs but we are fully financed and looking to deploy money not only in the incumbent states uh, in the west uh, colorado obviously california uh, washington state oregon but also in the east from maine to florida and we really like the midwest as well so we are very much focused on a national practice, um, looking for good borrowers in good markets. Um, and we will provide um, what I call whole enterprise solutions to help them uh, raise debt, which is non-dilutive, which means that the owners get to keep their ownership interest in the company while they are able to finance their acquisition of assets or based upon existing real estate. Gotcha. Wow, that's great. And yes, I mean, we are continuing to legalize and roll out licenses in more and more states every year, it seems. Um, and we're continuing our industry social event series in some of those states that you mentioned. Um, we will be in Miami, Florida on April 12th, Portland, Oregon on April 19th. And we'll be in New York City. We'll be in your your hometown there on April 27th, plus Chicago, Detroit, and then Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. So uh, NCIA will certainly be hosting these very valuable networking receptions that we host in the evening just for industry professionals 
NCIA members get complimentary access to those. And they're a really great time. Our events team just does a great job putting together a really nice event uh, for the cannabis industry to connect and mix and mingle and uh, continue to build community. And on that note, uh, let's take our first commercial break and then we'll come back and dive into more of some of the challenges of financing in the cannabis industry. So stay tuned, everyone. We will be right back. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice will return once we give a voice to our sponsors. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. All right, we're back on NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice on Cannabis Radio. I'm your host, Bethany Moore with NCIA, and we're talking with Andrew Kay of Sweetleaf Madison Capital, who has tons of experience on the financial side of the industry in and out of cannabis and is now working exclusively with cannabis companies. And, you know, anyone listening that knows anything about working in cannabis, financing in our industry has a myriad of challenges, whether you're trying to raise capital, uh, you know, for what is a federally illegal business, but also regular banking issues for businesses that are, you know, right, just losing their bank accounts or struggling with those services or maybe really high fees in order to keep that banking. Uh, so you know more than than the average Joe about what these challenges are for cannabis businesses. Can you get into some of those a bit more? Sure, Bethany. Let's start with the macro environment because we all know what Silicon Valley Bank has done to the banking system. It's yeah. created Whoops. some insecurity in community banking, particularly And um, the cannabis industry is really, on a macro basis, facing the same headwinds that all other industries are facing, which was exacerbated by Silicon Valley Bank, high interest rates, liquidity, and what I consider to be post-COVID hangover. Um, I recently postulated that Mm -hmm. maybe this is one case where the cannabis industry is not being punished versus other industries in that because of the banking restrictions, which we will get into, cannabis banking tends to be dispersed around the U.S. There's no similar concentration of banking as there is in the technology industry. So for once, cannabis was not the target of the banking industry. Um, But cannabis companies still need to search far and wide for banking services, bank accounts, loans, controlled accounts, you name it, it is a it is a more limited universe of banking alternatives for the cannabis industry. But there are other financial problems and, and challenges for cannabis. One would be the tax code, Section 280E, which every cannabis investor and operator knows about. Really, it penalizes cannabis because of its Schedule 1 aspect from deducting selling general and administrative expenses, 
which results in really outsized taxation of the industry. Right. As much as 70% for certain uh, cannabis participants in the cannabis market. It also distorts the financial condition of cannabis companies in really adverse ways. You have to really look at a cannabis balance sheet and profit and loss and do some interpretation of it to see what if the tax rate will lower. So it's hard to go apples to apples and oranges to oranges when it is cannabis versus non-cannabis businesses, and I've done both. So it, it is a real challenge that is faced by the industry. And um, you even see on some of the large public MSOs, which report publicly, that there are um, that they um, use the uh, taxation. They basically withhold federal taxes as a low-cost um, alternative. Um, real quickly, there is also issues of access to credit cards. There is difficult in getting third-party services like legal and accounting. So there's a lot of, of obstacles that the cannabis business faces that is not faced by other businesses. Right. Yes. We're working on all these things uh, in, in the long term. It's a, it's a long game for sure. I mean, this industry is definitely challenging, but it, it is also you know, exciting to work in it, but the challenges definitely keep us on our toes. I mean, each state is operating independently uh, due to the federal status. We don't have interstate commerce yet, um, but let's talk a bit about how federal legalization, which, you know, all of us feel is, um, you know, going to happen sooner rather than later. How would federal legalization impact how companies, how states are operating in addition to, it, it would solve this cannabis banking crisis if federal legalization were to happen. But what what else would we see? Well, first I'd like to mention that non-bank lenders like Sweetleaf Madison Capital do provide capital to the industry, notwithstanding the, the banking restrictions because we are what we would call a non-bank bank. So there are definitely alternatives out there. In cannabis, each state really is like a sovereign nation. Each city is like a sovereign nation. You know, it's very hard to, to because of these restrictions. And as John F. Kennedy said in 1962, most people in cannabis don't do it because it's easy. We do it because it's hard. Uh, federal uh, normalization would be really game changer. Access to banking, elimination of 280E, interstate commerce, all those things would really aid the industry in growth across state lines. Um, there has been attempts to, de to, to decriminalize, if you will, cannabis. There's the Safe Banking Act has been kicking around Congress for a number of years now, which would basically take cannabis off Schedule 1 and allow normalization of banking opportunity for cannabis. The Biden administration recently uh, signed the Medical Marijuana and uh, Cannabinoid uh, Research Act, which um, basically allows research into cannabis because medicinal applications have been impeded because of lack of ability to do free investigation of the plant. Right. Um, but I note that the Biden administration did not allow the District of Columbia to go recreational or adult use. And um, the state's notwithstanding federalization, are likely to try to put up some barriers. The number one reason states have uh, decriminalized cannabis is for tax revenue, not for individual freedom. And so it is likely that notwithstanding the ending of the prohibition and uh, the, 
the use of interstate commerce, that there's going to be some state impediments. Um, there, look at alcohol. In terms of uh, there are dry counties, there are counties where there's limited number of licenses. So I would say that notwithstanding that uh, federalization, there still will be significant uh, state impediments to true interstate commerce. Just to keep things interesting, right? <laughs> yes, just to keep them interesting. Um, before we take our second commercial break, um, one of the states that have recently legalized and are beginning to roll out licenses is where you're currently sitting right now in New York State. Uh, what are your thoughts about how that rollout of licenses and opening of businesses and opening of the cannabis market is going and, you know, any any pros and cons about how that's happening? You know, I think it's recognized that New York has done a kind of not a very good job. I would say that we more have an altered state of mind than a New York state of mind in the Empire State. Um, we've had two years of legalization of the plant, and yet there's 70 licenses issued and only a handful of retail open. So we have all this cannabis being grown legally upstate New York, principally, and nowhere to go. So everyone's dressed up and the party hasn't started. So there's plastic bags sitting in freezers all over the state waiting for have access to um, retail. Um, I do think that um, notwithstanding that, the tourism market is a big draw in New York. It's, New York's expected to have similar sales to California. And so I think the downstate area will solve it if they solve the number one problem, and that's unlicensed, unregulated cannabis sales. Within 10 blocks of my apartment, there's probably six or seven or eight places one can go to buy cannabis. So unless New York starts enforcing those laws, the compliant legal market will have a challenge. Also, the way New York did it is they divided the, um, the market rather than having an integrated vertical market into segments, cultivation, processing, retail, micro distribution, which makes it more difficult to actually make um, sufficient money to cover overhead and costs. So it's a tough market. And I think if you, the issue of social equity, they probably, they did the right thing in the wrong way. Rather than having some of the big MSOs and some of the operators make money, get tax revenue and take that tax revenue, make a fund for the, um, for social equity, they gave, they're giving licenses on the retail to social equity first. And it's very difficult for those groups to raise money. That's true. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thanks for breaking that down. Um, uh, yeah, New, New York definitely did things a little bit differently than some other states. So uh, we'll have we'll have to see how that how uh, how that laundry comes out on the other side. Um, let's take our last commercial break here, and then we'll come back and begin to wrap up our conversation with Andrew of Sweetleaf Madison Capital. Stay tuned. We will be right back. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice will return once we give a voice to our sponsors. All right, we're back on NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice. I'm your host, Bethany Moore, talking with Andrew Kay of Sweetleaf Madison Capital about challenges in finance in the cannabis industry, as well as some insight into how the new market's rolling out in the state of New York. So, um, Andrew, working smarter, not harder, is one of my favorite phrases. And with that in mind, 
and all the complicated regulations and compliance issues that our industry faces, Oof, big breath there, um, what comes to mind for you about how we as an industry can be better, faster, stronger as we move into the future more thoughtfully? Well, I think I'd modify your phrase. I think the cannabis industry needs to work smarter and harder. One area of possibility is issues of automation. You know, in 1913, uh, Henry Ford discovered the, the, the ability to lower the cost of manufacturing through automation. And I think that the cannabis industry already is and will accelerate automation as a hedge against lower commodity prices. Right now, we're about $1,000 a pound wholesale in the, throughout the United States, and it costs money to grow. So I think automation will be important in all areas, even retail. There is a Colorado retailer that has installed a vending machine that's fully compliant with Colorado law. So I think that's very important. Number two is I think that the industry needs to stay closer to the consumer. You know, I think the race to higher THC is a mistake. Uh, we see what I call social dosing or microdosing in other areas of drug consumption. And I think we're going to see it increasingly in cannabis where people just want, don't want high intensity cannabis, but want moderate or even low intensity cannabis. I think we'll look at, it'll look more like the beer industry over time. We'll have some big national brands and then we'll have local specialty and craft brands. So I think that there'll be a differentiation in the market between different kinds of consumer choice. Um, mm -hmm. And remember, it's called weed for a reason. And the reason is, is it's not hard to grow fundamentally. It's hard to grow high quality processing. You know, sake is not just rice and water. It's brewed. So there's an element of, of, of looking towards uh, feeding the consumer's needs. Um, I'm very optimistic, very optimistic. We have to remember that cannabis is only 10 years young. Um, people are still being incarcerated in the U.S. for cannabis possession. Um, you have to look down the road. You can't look right in front of the windshield and make determinations of what the industry is going to be and what it's going to look like. And so I think we'll see laws changing. Soon you'll be able to drive New York to California um, through all legal states. We have a little bit some, there in the kind of eastern Midwest that's still an impediment. But I do believe that um, ultimately we'll be working harder, we'll be working smarter, and the um, drum roll of, of legalized cannabis will be heard in all 50 states. Oh, I love that. That's that was that was a strong way to to express that as well. And, you know, there I, I think you're absolutely right. There's some really exciting things drumming up uh, behind the scenes with some of the folks in NCIA's committees. Uh, we have some of just the most passionate um, smart, knowledgeable experts that are putting their brains together on all of these NCIA committees year after year. And I'm getting really excited to work uh, with, with the committees on some things that are drumming up behind the scenes that are really going to provide uh, some unity uh, on where we're headed as we go forward. And another important part of all this, of course, is our advocacy work. NCIA has lobbyists in DC year round who are 
talking with congressional offices, members of Congress about many of these issues that you mentioned already in this episode, like the Safe Banking Act and 280E of the IRS tax code and so on, uh, as well as descheduling and what that means and uh, just so many issues. But really, members of Congress also need to hear from you, the cannabis operators, the small business owners, uh, about what it is like to run your cannabis business and the challenges that you are facing uh, both at the state and federal level. So reminder that Lobby Days is right around the corner. It is May 16th, 17th, and 18th in Washington, D.C. It is my absolute favorite thing that NCIA does. I mean, the Colorado Cannabis Caucus the other week was really nice, but Lobby Days is really where it's at. This is where we are running around, getting blisters on our feet, going (laughs) from House and Senate buildings, talking with staffers about our issues and really making an impact, getting co-sponsorship on important bills, opening minds, um, and thanking those offices that are already supportive of cannabis, who already get it. And we're just giving them more fuel to the fire for when they go back on, on the floor to continue pushing our issues along. So there's an opening welcome reception to kind of get our bearings and meet your fellow co uh, colleagues. And then a couple days of meetings on the Hill and then a nice closing reception where typically several members of Congress will come by and say hello and give a few words to the crowd and take some pictures with our members. So it's just such an amazing event. Um, I hope you get a chance to go, Andrew, and bring bring the Sweet Leaf Madison Capital team to Washington, D.C. with us. Well, that sounds exciting. It really is. All right. So as we begin to wrap up the show here, where can our listeners find out more about you and your company? Well, you can go to www.sweetleafmadisoncapital.com and you can find out about our company and what we do. And those of you looking for financing, there's a link there to to um, contact us and we'll certainly get back to you. Excellent. Thanks again for being on the show and sharing your insight today. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice. Until next time. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.